Hello, Team Health Tech. This is Peter Birch. In fact, just kidding. It's not the real human Pete. It's a computer-generated voice, which has been trained using artificial intelligence to replicate the real thing. Welcome to the future. This is my evil laugh, if you couldn't tell. Okay, so this is real human Pete now, by the way. Dead set, I didn't say a word of that that you just heard. I just typed it in to some editing software, which is just available off the shelf. I trained it in probably less than an hour and it replicated my voice pretty well. If I trained it longer, I'd probably be out of a job and Robo Pete would be your new podcast host. So for some people, this concept is super cool. And for some other people, it scares the pants off them. All of the ethical questions come to mind when you start thinking about tools like this. Okay, so now apply the same concern about ethics and artificial intelligence to healthcare. We're just getting started with the possibilities of what artificial intelligence can do in healthcare. How far can it go? Are you super excited about it or really worried? Well, in this episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Stefan Herrera from the Digital Health CRC, and he's got a long history of exploring the use of artificial intelligence in healthcare. In this episode, we're going to dive deep into ethics of AI in healthcare. We'll explore all those tricky topics that encompass AI. How do you foster trust in AI? How do you embed values into a machine? And when exactly will we be bowing down to our robot overlords? Keep listening to find out more, guys. Collaboration starts with a conversation. Team Health Tech, let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Dr. Stefan Herrera, Chief Innovation Officer at the Digital Health CRC. Stefan was previously at IBM Research, where he worked on DNA sequencing technologies and founded the brain-inspired computer research program of IBM Research Australia. He holds over 65 issued patents and was named IBM Master Inventor twice. He's a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, a senior member of the IEEE, and an adjunct professor at the University of Technology, Sydney. He holds a PhD in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science from the Technology University, Munich, and an honors master's degree in technology management from the Center of Digital Technology and Management. Hey, Stefan, how are you? Hi, Peter. Nice to be in this show. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for using your real human voice as well. That's <laughs> great to have you here. Hey, look, I gave you a bit of an overview in the intro of the show, but tell us a little bit more about your, yourself, please, sir. So I'm the Chief Innovation Officer of the Digital Health Cooperative Research Centre, which is one of Australia's and actually worldwide biggest incubators and investors in the digital health space. And what that means is that I oversee the technical incubation strategy and the commercialization framework for this fund, which makes sure that these ideas that originate in smart people's brains and materialize in their labs, find their way out into the real world and create real impact there. That's also what I've done previously. Uh, as I grew up in IBM research for the previous 12 and a half years, I've always had one foot firmly in the research trenches and the other foot firmly outside in the real world. My mission has always been to bridge that gap and make that innovation come out of the lab and create real world impact. And that, of course, in healthcare 
artificial intelligence and biomedical engineering. Very cool. I think it's important first, when we think of artificial intelligence, should we be fearing artificial intelligence? No, absolutely not. Having said this, though, it's also absolutely clear that like with all transformative technologies, they create hesitancy and concern in a broad fraction of the public. So that's a natural effect, and that's no different with artificial intelligence. What we should fear, though, really, is not knowing what we can do with that technology, how we can actually use it for good. And so instead of being fearful of artificial intelligence, I urge everyone to be curious about it and to get engaged in the discussion around it. Because one thing is clear, it will penetrate and touch pretty much everyone's life sooner or later. So yeah. better to get in now, learn about it, get excited about it, take a part in developing it responsibly and developing into something that can be really used for good. Love it. And so often conversation around, not just in healthcare, but anywhere really, the use of AI, often the conversation leads to a conversation around ethics. Are ethics a concern when it comes to artificial intelligence? Of course, and they should be. It's very important that a new technology is used and introduced into society in a responsible way, right? I just mentioned that artificial intelligence will have an effect on our lives. So it needs to be absolutely clear within which values that effect happens and plays out. So really, it's as important to develop the technical aspects of AI as it is to develop the ethical frameworks around it. And what about trust? How do we build some trust around the concepts of artificial intelligence? There's a few aspects here, right, on how to do this. But rather than going scientifically deep, I'd rather like to really argue with, you know, normal human common sense, what makes us uneasy, what treats distrust, right? And that is, for example, if we don't understand how something works, mm. if we don't understand when it is used, where it is. And these are very basic principles of design that you can apply to moving artificial intelligence forward so that trust is built. So you, for example, build explainable AI technology, meaning that you can make sure you can explain how the technology that you built there, how these algorithms actually work and what they do, which leads to the second principle. Transparency is important. It's really, really a big point to know when artificial intelligence is used at any point in time, what it is used for, what it intends to achieve, which leads to the third aspect of ethical design, which is the purpose and the values. There is a design trajectory that we can control that helps us point the technology towards a certain goal, towards a certain aim. And that value is something that we should declare clearly at the outset of developing these AI algorithms and methodologies so that everyone who comes across them knows what they're being used for, what they intend to do, how they do it, and give data and explainability around that. Yeah. You call that giving the artificial intelligence a value, a purpose, uh, meaning like that's why it's developed to achieve a particular purpose. But when I think of values, that's a very human term and the reason why people do things. And I don't immediately think of being able to embed values into a machine. Is, is that possible? It is possible. And there is essentially a two-step approach to it. First, you would really embed and integrate certain values and rules 
you would hardwire those into your AI system. And they are non-negotiable, they're non-changeable, they're there from the outset. And then you start deploying your AI algorithm, and as you do, you let it learn as it is deployed into this operational environment that it's being used into, and you let it learn how these subtle aspects of values for example, of the geography, for example, of the discipline that it is used in and by play out and you update your value-based framework for this algorithms as you go. So it's really something that we need to hardwire into any AI algorithm at the outset. And then we need to let it also learn and adapt. That's a two-step approach to creating a value-aware artificial intelligence framework. Now, of course, you're right. Values are somewhat subjective. They depend on the geography, on the particular society, on the field, on the user base. And this is all something, this is all homework that we need to do and be absolutely aware of as developers in the AI space. As we dive into it, as we build and design this technology, we need to really do that homework and really make sure that we are aware of the surroundings, the values around this technology as we deploy it into society. And thinking of AI in our day-to-day, this might not be the best example, but there's plenty around, you know, if you Google, and I'm not the first one to bring it up, you Google something generic like successful business person in Google images, and it comes up with a bunch of cliche pictures of middle-aged white guys and or whatever it brings up. And so this concept of bias around artificial intelligence, that's becoming an increasingly big concern when it comes to artificial intelligence, is it not? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of the core concerns. And so let me talk a little bit about it and waste on how we can mitigate it and actually eliminate it. So how does bias come into these AI technologies anyways? It can come in through the selection of data It can come in through the type of algorithms and it can come in through the way how you train up those algorithms using that data. So these are all pathways on how bias can actually sneak into artificial intelligence applications. Also points to the entry points of eliminating it. So I talked about the data, for example, right? Every AI algorithm is heavily dependent on the type of data that you feed it. Think about really teaching a human on a certain topic. You expose them to data on that topic, to information on that topic of all sorts. And as you expose that human to that data, you ingrain certain findings and ways on how to analyze and interpret that data so that At the end, if they are presented with similar data in real-world environments, they can make the same calls and understand that data. So you're really teaching a human to interpret data that you present them with. Same is true for algorithms, right? So imagine you present an algorithm with mugshots of criminals and you train an algorithm on, on that data. Now, it depends heavily on what selection of wanted posters you choose for that. You can have bias in that training by choosing examples from a certain demographic background. You can choose examples from a certain age, gender group, and your algorithm will be trained up on these data points. So you have to make sure 
that the data that you expose your algorithms with is balanced, is inclusive, and is constantly scrutinized, right, for quality and any sort of hint of bias or unbalance. And then, of course, the same is true for your training algorithms and the algorithms themselves. It's really important to have these frameworks, to have these review checkpoints in your development pipeline as you develop these algorithms very actively check on these points and make sure that you didn't have data bias algorithmic bias or training bias sneak into your development process another concern that often comes to mind when it comes to artificial intelligence generally and we'll get into specifically the application of ai in healthcare in a sec but stefan i've seen the movies the robots will eventually take over and this concept of a singularity is there. You know, we create the robots, then they take over the world, right? Is this actually legitimately a thing no, that can happen? No, this is science fiction. There's no evidence scientifically or economically or technically that this man versus machine dystopia is anywhere near or even possible at that. Of course, it's an exciting topic to talk about and we shouldn't dismiss it, right? Because it's one possible trajectory that this development of AI could potentially point to, but it is so far out and there is really no indication here that we're getting anywhere close that this should actually really concern or even dominate or inhibit us from developing AI. And what's really important is to understand what AI can do right now, where we are on the journey of creating real world impact from AI technologies and how we can actively influence where that journey is going. That is our responsibility, not to give in to science fiction scenarios, which have no connection to reality anytime soon. We can sleep easy for the foreseeable future. This is good. Yeah. So thinking about, about healthcare, like you say, bring it to the real world, what would you say that the status quo is then in terms of the use of AI in healthcare? Maybe have you got any examples of it? Absolutely. This is a great transition because let's just spend a few seconds on assessing where AI is and what it can and cannot do. We've essentially moved from a field that is called narrow AI to the realm of what's called broad AI. What that means is that we have learned and are actively learning to translate some of the findings that we have produced from applying AI technologies in very narrow applications to other application. So for example, which is give you that example, if we have developed an AI algorithm that can find certain objects in mammography imagery, we can use certain bits and pieces of that AI algorithm to find objects automatically in other types of images. And that must not necessarily even be images. You can go to other types of data, such as sensor data. So there's a toolbox of AI here that we have established and that's constantly growing. And we are becoming into, I'm calling this essentially new collar jobs. We are applying AI. There's no need right now for everyone to do outer-worldly AI research to have real relevant impact on what happens in real-world applications. We can really learn how to use what we got. And this is where we are, right? So we are really, I, I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but AI plumbing is really what's going on in a lot of applications here, where the key differentiator lies in knowing what tools to apply in certain use cases for specific types of data, for specific applications. That's where we are. We're really learning how to work with those tools and we're expanding on that toolbox and what's in it in terms of tools. So the applications that we see right now are largely in fields such as 
automation. Wherever you have repeatable, learnable tasks to do, that's where AI technology has started to come in as an assistant. Give an example, say a radiologist reads mammography images and aims to identify tumor parts in it. And that is something that's, of course, very sophisticated and builds on extreme levels of expertise and knowledge. But from a procedural step, it's not unlike the x-ray security checkpoint at the airport where a person stares at an image and tries to find an object of interest, a pattern of interest in it. Now, that is something where we see AI technology from the field of imagery analytics come in, does uh, a pre-selection on images that it is presented with, and then, for example, presents those to the clinician or the expert for verification and correction. Now, you can imagine that this is something that speeds up, that can speed up the process of image review dramatically, freeing time that these clinicians then have to spend all creative tasks, like coming up with new treatment plans for their patients, like having real patient conversations, all things that are heavily overlaid by the massively repeatable steps that are currently there in many clinical workflows. You see the same thing in the patient monitoring space, where gadgets, wearable devices are equipped with automatic detection algorithms from the field of AI to pick up disease patterns of interest. For example, in neurology, when it comes to epileptic seizure patterns or mental health monitoring, when it comes up to picking up mood states, there, or in the cardiology space, we come to picking up patterns um, that relate to disease episodes in the cardiac space. So these are all methods where data collection and data analysis are assisted by the use of AI. That's where we see the field of AI penetrate clinical workflows right now. And that's where we see much more in the future as well. Yeah, I was going to say, so would you summarize then that the potential or the promise of AI in healthcare then is really centered around that space of being the intelligent assistant for a clinician with those repeatable and replicable tasks? Absolutely. And they will get more complex and increasing uh, number of data modalities, the speed with which the data grows, the different types and quality stages that this data comes in. That is the mother of all unstructured, noisy data sets. And the method to find the needle in the haystack, that information that's needed at a given point in time is AI. So this is really where AI comes in, just like you said, as an assistive system that augments not replaces, that augments the capabilities of clinical experts. Thinking back to the topic of the conversation around the use of ethics in AI and applying that into healthcare, I can think of my own reasons, but talk to me about the importance of ethics when it comes to healthcare and AI. First thing I really want to highlight here that healthcare and life sciences is not following that classical Silicon Valley move fast and break things scheme. That is because people's lives, people's health is at stake here. You're not dealing with anything else, but actually having people's well-being in your hands if you use any of these technologies to make diagnostic or prognostic or disease management decisions. This is as high as it can get when it comes to the stakes at hand. That means that everything is amplified. The concern 
of users and patience of actually trusting that technology is extremely high. The punishment for not getting it right in the first place is brutal. You make one mistake, you let your technology make one false call, one unethical application, and you are out of that development cycle and you will have lost everyone's trust immediately. And that is hard to regain if it's possible at all. So the stakes are high, the risks are high, and so they should be, right? This is a field that deals with all of us, you know, just make this thought experiment. What you think if your doctor told you that he has based a certain recommendation on the input that they got from an AI tool. You would want to know all these things that I highlighted before. Well, how did this tool come to this conclusion? What data did it actually have to get to that conclusion? And when did your doctor actually use that tool and how did it influence what they told you? You would want to know all this before you would give your thumbs up of that being used. If you get it right though, the benefits are also exponentially high. Imagine what we can achieve by actually getting the right information to patients and clinicians in real time out of this vast amount of data that we collect. Healthcare is an evidence-based discipline, right? So it's all about monitoring patients, collecting data, analyzing that data, and then feeding that back to patients in terms of actionable results and services. That is what it's all about. And AI is what runs deep in the engine room to make the connections between all these data collection, data management, and data analysis and service provider spaces. So that's really where we need to think about how we apply it and how we apply these values and ethical principles to include it in clinical workflows. Hmm. And then building on that and thinking about, say, the design of some of these health AI technologies and how they can be implemented. Do you know, can you talk us through some of those use cases or specifics to put it in context? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For example, if you have an AI algorithm that you would like to use to monitor for skin cancer development, right? You would have to train this algorithm on samples that show malign and benign samples from patients. And then you would teach that algorithm every time they would find a tumor image, they would be labeled that. And if it's a healthy sample, then you would tell the algorithms that. Now, you could train this algorithm with all sorts of samples, but to, for example, eliminate bias, you would now go ahead and compose your cohort of patient samples from patients uh, of different skin tones, different ages, and different genders and balance this all out so that your algorithm at the end of the day doesn't, for example, does not recognize a malign tumor image in a cohort in a patient from a certain sample size that you haven't included in the training algorithm before. So here is a checkpoint at the data composition step of your AI development that makes sure that your algorithm works equally well for the broad representation of all the demographics that you apply to. That is one example here, of course, there are many others, but you see that data balancing and making sure that you scrutinize the data that goes into your algorithm and that you use to train it up is representative for all the classes in your user cohort later down the road when you deploy it into the real world clinical workflows. And thinking then about fostering and driving some of this innovation and development when it comes to ethical health AI, 
technology. You know, you've recently come into the role of CIO at the Digital Health CRC. How are you going about helping the broader industry go about this yeah. with in terms of the incubator and investor? That is what I regard as one of my core responsibilities as the one overseeing the early stage incubation. That means we come in when projects are designed, when project plans are put together, when deliverables are designed, and when the methods of how to get to these deliverables are scrutinized. So it's very important at this point to make sure that explicit checkpoints are in our project co-design phase whenever AI is involved that make sure that we actively analyze and review those ethical aspects of the project. So we would go in and analyze, well, what AI algorithms are proposed here, right? Is this a black box or is this something that has a fighting chance to go through regulatory approval stages? Then during the application of these algorithms, we would look at transparency and make sure that we have test phases where the use of these AI algorithms in value-based clinical care models is ensured. So we really have active checkpoints and review stages during this project co-design phase that make sure that the aspects of ethical use of these technologies are visited and implemented at all times. I'm thinking to a recent THT Plus member meetup that we had, and there was an early stage founder who, and I can think of many other, I guess, early stage founders, whether they're at seed or series A, looking for investment, they've gone through the pitch deck and then a potential investor has said, well, there's no AI. Where's the fancy automation that yeah. goes on? So thinking about the other way from an incubator yeah. and investor yeah. and you know the support you provide, for those founders who, I guess, haven't got some intelligent solutions within practical tools, is this a concern? Should they be looking at how they can incorporate it? There's a couple of things to unpack here. The first thing I will say is this, hardly ever do we fund proposals or pitches that are based on outerworldly AI and ambitiously positioned AI. What we do look out for is realistic, pragmatic machine learning tools. That is what has a chance of actually going through all these regulatory approval stages, through the benchmarking stages. These algorithms have a chance to be robust enough to be actually performing in these applications later down the road. Whenever you come across some really science fiction-esque AI descriptions, and whenever a pitch is based solely or predominantly on the claim that the AI in it is the smartest thing since sliced bread, then this is where all my alarm bells go off because this is not where you are usually starting your journey of moving AI algorithms into real-world applications. You set the bar much lower. So I would actually argue on the contrary, the more realistic, the more down-to-earth, the more mundane a pitch is with regards to claims around the AI that is using, the more attractive it becomes to us. The thing to keep in mind is that the differentiator, I can't emphasize this strongly enough, the differentiator in these AI-based solutions that are pitched to us is not the algorithm itself. It's not the analysis software. These are smart usages of existing technology more often than not. The differentiator is really the data and the value add by using the data together with the algorithm for giving a human decision maker a better way 
to make more informed, better informed and faster decisions. It's the data that is the differentiator and your knowledge about how to apply existing analytical AI tools to get that piece of information out of the data that you need. It's not the outer worldly claim about novel AI that hasn't been seen out there ever before and that now all of a sudden becomes the solution to everything. That's not what we're looking for. Love it. That's some great actionable advice and some reassuring advice too. Hey, look, lastly, Stefan, we've talked about the need for getting involved as a broader industry community in terms of embracing artificial intelligence. For those that are interested in learning more, they might be at the kind of earlier stages of that journey and wanting to get across and become involved or educate themselves in the process. Are there any kind of tools or things that they should be keeping out for? Absolutely. You don't need a PhD to get involved meaningfully in the field of AI. As a matter of fact, many people don't have one and are absolutely at the forefront of this. So a couple of things to do is there is a lot of excellent online self-paced learning materials, interactive coursework. I can really recommend the Stanford Coursera courses on machine learning. Of course, generations almost have gone through this, but it does only get better. This is a really good package of courses that gets you up to speed on pretty much all basic aspects of machine learning in a very hands-on way. Then another thing that I really want to highly recommend doing is participate in what's called crowdsourced AI challenges. These are essentially competitions where a competition organizing team has put out a data set of interest and then asks a question as to what should be extracted from that data set. Invites the public to submit solutions for algorithms that can be trained and tested on this data set. And then there is a final competition stage usually where final submissions are then benchmarked and rated against each other. And these competitions are fascinating playgrounds for developing and applying whichever skills you might have acquired. And that can be novice to expert to work together with others in the field is a very highly collaborative element to these challenges and to get exposure for your work, right? We scrutinized the leaderboards of these challenges back in my IBM days for the best performing teams. And it was not unheard of to then approach winners with job offers and really boost their hiring pro. So these challenge participations, which are free to participate in, are a fantastic way to get a pulse check of where you are and to also get stimulated to apply and expand your skills in AI as you go from wherever you might have started to wherever you want to go. It's a lot of fun. Watch out for these challenges. The Dream Challenges, for example, is a brand in the healthcare and life sciences space where these crowdsource challenges are organized. Check it out. Do a little bit of online course. And the most important thing I would do is, I would say, is do it all in a hands-on applied way. That's how you really learn best and most efficiently. AI is not so much a textbook science. Of course, you need to do your math and you need to have your statistics up your sleeves. But real progress comes from trying to apply what you know to real world problems, talking to people, collaborating with people who are like-minded and getting in the field hands-on. That's how to do it. And I hope you have fun doing it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Look, and we'll, we'll try and summarize and put some of those links and resources and ideas in the show notes of this episode. So if people listening in can check out that and hopefully learn more. Look, Stefan, I really appreciate you making the time to take us through this today and good luck with everything you're doing in the future. Thanks a lot, Peter. And if everyone has any questions at any point in time, find me on LinkedIn, shoot me a note. I am a big fan of talking, having virtual and hopefully real coffees and beers sometime in the near future soon.
Sometime soon. Fingers crossed. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out TalkingHealthTech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen. <laughs>